Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Friday uh, night, we were amusing ourselves at home. Uh, it's an interesting book. It's called Amusing Yourself to Death, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and it's about the entertainment culture in America. I think it came out in the 90s. And so I was amusing myself to death on Friday night. Uh, we were uh, watching YouTube videos, not cat videos, okay? We had done that earlier in the week with Dave because he's addicted to cat videos on YouTube. But we were actually watching uh, some music and different artists and some concerts and things that we enjoy. And when we were also watching some comedians. One of them uh, was a, a young comedian that uh, Josh Graham, uh, who had come over for dinner that evening, told us about. And so we started watching some videos of him. And after we turned off the machine and uh, started getting ready for bed, I learned about the attacks in Paris. And uh, I don't know when you first heard the news, but uh, I I was once again uh, greatly distressed and saddened with what I heard. Not surprised, but definitely saddened by what I heard about uh, going on in Paris. And I've tried to learn some of what happened, and obviously they're trying to piece together what happened, but it sounds like there were six or seven different coordinated attacks around Paris, and 120, 130 people dead. And uh, Sam went to the CSU football game. Here in Ray, you don't worry about terrorists too much, but when a person goes to the front range, to a football game, to a public event like that, then you start uh, thinking about things. And fortunately, I'm not really a worrier. Um, I just stop thinking about it and then it leaves my brain. So uh, it's a gift that God's given men, I believe, to compartmentalize our lives. So I just put the box of Sam and worry away and I went about my day. But one of the things that um, is interesting as you think about these attacks, terrorism, the state of the world that we live in, There seems to be a couple of different narratives, different narratives that people tell themselves about the world. One narrative is that uh, we evolved, that uh, the world just happened out of a big bang. It's, It's kind of a big accident. And this big bang, as, uh, as physicists tell us, they can they can work their way back in time to within milliseconds of when that Big Bang happened. And they can study what happened at that moment in time. And, and then as we move forward in time, whether it's millions or hundreds of millions or billions and billions of years, as Carl Sagan would say when I was a kid, over time, something happened that created single-cell organism life. Something happened where in the primordial soup that existed, maybe it was a lightning strike, but they can't figure out how it happened, but they're trying to figure it out, but somehow life occurred. 
And then from that single cell, all of life sprung up. All that you see that is living, plants and trees and flowers and bees and people and deer and pheasants, you know it's hunting season. All these things came about from that single organism that sprung up. And eventually, humanity came and started walking the face of the earth. And humanity is just one in a, as the Lion King tells me, the circle of life. You want to sing it, don't you? The circle of life when you hear it. There's a great moment in the circle of life where the father is talking to the son and they're singing. You know, all the animals are singing because they can, because of evolutionary theory, they can sing. And they're all singing and, and Simba turns to his father and he's saying, circle, well, he doesn't say it this way, this is a paraphrase, circle, we eat the antelope. I'm thinking it's more of a pyramid, dad, and we're at the top. What do you mean circle? And his father explains, well, we eat the antelope and, and then we die and we become fertilizer and that becomes grass. And the antelope eats us as grass, and on and on it goes. And that's one of the narratives that you'll hear in today's world. That it's all a big accident, and someday you'll die, and this whole circle continues, and you'll just become fertilizer at some point. And in this narrative... Violence, like what happened on Friday night, it's difficult to explain. I mean, on one hand, it's easy to explain because if survival of the fittest is true, then those who died that night just didn't have the right equipment. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this narrative continues on and it says, the people who are perpetuating these things, the problem with them is that they have religious beliefs that has made them really extreme. And the way to fix the problem is we need to educate them. We need to give them jobs. They need to be able to make money. They need to be able to change their station in life. And if they are given enough opportunities, then these things will stop. And in this narrative of the circle of life, this makes a lot of sense. Because the core of this worldview is the notion that everything is good. And everyone is good. The reason they act poorly is not because they are bad people. The reason they act poorly is because they're uneducated or they're religious extremists. Or some other reason. They're victims in some way. There's another narrative that you might have heard in our culture. This narrative has a whole different take on Friday night. This narrative teaches that the world was created by a good and loving God. This good and loving God created the world and He made everything that you see. That exists. And after he created it, he didn't say it was perfect. He used the word, he could have said perfect. He could have used that word. That word existed. He used the word, it was good. 
He said it was good. Everything that he created was good. And in his creation, there was a particular location that he created. And it was a particular spot in creation. And we know it was a particular spot because it tells us where it was. It was bordered by these rivers. And it was the Garden of Eden. Now, perhaps you've thought that the whole world was the Garden of Eden when it was created. And that's just not biblically correct. The Garden of Eden was a particular spot in the world. The way we know this is, well, we'll, I'll save that for a moment. But it was boundaried by lands, by waters. And in the garden, God created male and female. And this God said, let us make man in our own image. And the only creature, the only being that was created in God's image was humanity. Scholars debate what that means. But I think at a core level, it means we have free will. In order to be like God, we have to have choice. Because God has choice. Part of how this choice worked out was we chose poorly. Every morning when I drop off Dave at school, I tell him, make wise choices. Because I know he has free will. And I know he's got a strong will. He's like his mom. (laughs) And I know that he could exert his will for good or for ill each day. I know he could make decisions. And as we grow older, the decisions we make have more and more repercussions in our life. The decisions we make start to impact our lives currently and our future self more and more as we age. Think about it. When you were six years old, what decisions did you make that you're still living with today? But when you were 16 years old, what decisions did you make that you perhaps are still living with today? As we get older, those decisions have greater impact on our lives and the lives of other people. And Adam and Eve were placed in this garden. They were made in God's image, and he gave them freedom to choose him or not. And he kind of created this scenario, and it's kind of a a strange scenario. In the garden, he put a tree, and he said, don't eat it. (laughs) He had to give them a choice. Would they obey or not? And it wasn't because he was mean and nasty and, you know, it's going to be the best fruit in the whole garden. I'm, everything else is just bran and these are the raisins and they can't eat them, you know. I mean, just think of raisin bran without the raisins. And it's not like he was mean and like everything else tasted like bran, but the tree was the raisins, like what made it edible. It was just a test. If you've ever parented, you know how this works. You know that you have to, you have to give them rope, enough rope sometimes to hang themselves by. You have to give them the opportunity to mess up. Because if you don't, they're going to just live with you forever. They'll never leave. They'll always need you. 
And God knew that he needed to give them a legitimate choice to choose to disobey him. And he gave this tree. It's interesting. A being spoke to Eve and deceived her. And she ate. The consequence of eating that tree, God had made it very clear. He said, if you eat the tree, dying you will die. And they ate it. And at that moment, something radically changed in this world. One thing that happened was, and this is how we know Eden was a particular part of the globe and not the whole globe, is they were kicked out of Eden. And God placed a flaming sword at the entrance to Eden. They were kicked out to the land of Nod. Some of you experience that every Sunday morning right about now. They were kicked out and they went to the land of Nod. And in this narrative, the very first siblings, the very first brothers, were Cain and Abel. And the very first brothers ever, one of them, his life ended because his other brother murdered him. Now, the first narrative, they sit around and scratch their heads and go, how come these nice, well-meaning, educated people can't get along? We just need to educate them more. We need to give them more things. We need to create more government. We need to control more. We need to create things that we can help people figure stuff out better. And the second narrative says, this is just the ancient story that's been going on since the beginning. Brother murdering other brother. Now, if you believe the second narrative, what happened Friday night does not surprise you. If you believe the first narrative, perhaps it does. If you believe the first narrative, you are looking for an answer that's a natural answer. And it would make sense you're looking for a natural answer because the only thing that exists is the natural material world. That's all that's ever existed. That's all that ever will exist, according to that view. And so the answer must lie in government. The answer must rely on science. The, the answer must rely in sociology or psychology. The answer must lie somewhere like that. The second worldview, if you believe that one, you know that the answer to the question of when will these things end lies with outside of this world. It lies outside of this natural world that you can see. It lies in the supernatural world. In the last few weeks, we've been walking through the parable of the prodigal son. It just so happens that this incident in Paris coincides with this message today where we learn what the human condition is. Let me read to you again to just refresh our memories of the prodigal son. We'll start in Luke 15, verse 17. And there we read. But when he, the younger brother, came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what this thing meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So we've been looking at this story We know that there's this younger son and he's gone off and squandered his share of the inheritance. And you know that's only about a third because he's the younger brother. Like I've been arguing, I think we need to reinstitute this because I'm an older brother. I'd like to get two-thirds of what my folks have. Fortunately, I have the microphone and my brother and sister aren't here to argue with me. My guess is, though, they want it all split in thirds. This younger brother, though, got a third. The older brother would get two-thirds. And it's fascinating how the father welcomes him back, and we've been looking at this, the repentance and the forgiveness that occurs in the story that Jesus told. And we see that Jesus, in a way, is telling us all that we're the younger brother. In a way, we are the lost, exiled younger brother. We live in a world that doesn't feel quite right. It feels messed up. It doesn't feel like we should become fertilizer someday. And everyone we know and love and care about, they should just be, they should not just become fertilizer someday. There seems to be something profoundly wrong with this world. You felt it Friday. You felt it Saturday. As the news reports continued to come out of Paris, you felt that. That something is profoundly, deeply wrong with this world. The scriptures tell us the problem is rebelliousness. The problem is sin. The problem is us. You might be thinking, well, you know, I'm not nearly as bad as those people. I'm not the person that would ever think of doing that. 
Jesus, he said, you say you have not murdered anybody, but I tell you, anyone who has been angry at his brother is guilty of murder. Now, our culture really likes Jesus. They really like Jesus, but I think our culture hasn't read Jesus very closely. Because I can't think of anybody in our culture would like that statement. That's radical. That's crazy talk. To, to equate my anger with somebody is equivalent to the murdering of people in Paris? Please. To, to say that my desire for vengeance, that somebody would pay, that there'd be bloodshed, that they'd get it, makes me evil and equivalent to the murderers? That's what Jesus says. Not popular words. Sounds like a liberal even. What do we do with this? Well, if we're all honest, we all have to recognize we're part of the problem. We're all younger brothers. We're all estranged from the Father. We all live in a foreign land as aliens. We can't fix this. You see, what we want is heaven on earth. What we want is a utopian society that these things never happened. That people don't die and become fertilizers. That people live forever. That we never have to say goodbye to those we love. That our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents and, you know, on down the list, they're all hanging out with us. And it's a big party and feast all the time. And you never have to say goodbye. And nobody has to pay the bill. Nobody has to do the dishes. Nobody has to excuse themselves from the meal for any reason whatsoever. It's just a continual feast that goes on forever. And that is what I feel I was created for. And on top of that, you can eat whatever you want, and there's no consequences. You never have to excuse yourself and go to the rack, unless you want to. You don't have to, but if you want to, because it's fun, you go. This is the utopian world that we want. And really what we want is we want this world, this land, that is in this collective consciousness of our minds. It's called Eden. We want heaven on earth. And some primordial memory of us. We were never there, but we can picture it. We've never known anybody that was there. We can all picture it. We all know what this world would be like. It would be perfect. No one would die. No one would cry. No bills would need to be paid. All would be taken care of. That's what people campaign on after all, isn't it? It's utopian society. So how are we going to get this? What's the solution to our condition? The well, scriptures make it clear. Somebody from heaven needs to come to earth. Somebody from that foreign land needs to come here and fix it. 
Somebody who's not us because we're part of the problem. Somebody who can come and, and look like us and hang out like us and be like us and live like us, but not like us, you know? Somebody who can experience everything that we experience, but not mess it up. Somebody who can come and never feel an anger that is sinful. Somebody who can show up and not live with any sort of regret. Somebody who can show up and never has to say, oops, sorry. It's amazing that somebody could do that. It's supernatural, clearly. Maybe you've heard songs like, I'm only human. And that's often an excuse for how we behave. I'm only human. Perhaps we need somebody who's not only human. That's what the scriptures say. We need somebody who's human, but not only human. That person, the scriptures tell us, is Jesus Christ, the man who told the story. The scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is fully God in the flesh. He's fully human, but he's not only human. He's fully God and fully man in one person. And he comes from heaven to earth to put things right. To bring about this utopian dream that's in the back of our minds that on Friday was so severely disrupted. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. See, you and I were made for another world. And Jesus Christ came from that other world into this world to save us. One of the things that's striking, and we haven't looked at the other, passage, the other parts of this passage in Luke 15, but Jesus is addressing grumbling religious people. Not that they still exist. This was a problem back then. Grumbling religious people no longer happen, right? So anyways, um, Jesus was addressing grumbling religious people. And he tells these three stories. In the first story, there's a sheep that's lost. And the shepherd goes out to look for it and find it. In the second story, there's a coin that's lost. And the woman who lives in the home she tears up the house. She turns everything upside down to find her coin. We've done that at our home, looking for iPads at about 7, 38 o'clock, or else somebody needs to go to school. In the third story, and it's really striking if you read these three together as they were told by Jesus, nobody goes looking for the younger son. Younger son's lost, but nobody goes looking for him. And it's like Jesus is begging the question, who should be looking for the younger son? Who should go look for him? And in that culture, because of the law of primogenitor, it's the elder brother. 
The law of primogenitor says that the elder brother's responsibility, this is why he actually got two-thirds of the inheritance. His job is to protect and secure the stability of the family, to keep it together. (coughs) The elder brother should have gone and looked for the younger brother. There's a story that appeared in Life magazine, March 12, 1965. And it told the story of a U.S. Air Force pilot who was shot down over Vietnam. And he was behind enemy lines and they could not get to him. They didn't know if he was alive or dead. The military had no answers for the family. The family had an older brother. And the older brother, according to the article sold all he had, left his wife in the States with $20, and he went to Vietnam. He outfitted himself for the journey, and he entered into the jungles. He was actually captured for four months as a prisoner of war by the Viet Cong. But he was looking for his brother. He actually became known as the brother of the pilot. He was known by both the U.S. and the Viet Cong because the Viet Cong respected this man. He wasn't injured because he was looking for the younger brother. You see, that's what this older brother should have done. And it's an indictment that Jesus is giving to religious people because they're the older brothers in the story. And they should be out in the battlefield looking for the younger brothers. They should risk themselves, their fortunes, their good name, their reputation for the younger brother. How often do they not? You see, this is actually the picture that Jesus wants to paint of himself because he is the ultimate elder brother and he leaves heaven to look for the younger brothers he enters the battlefield of our world and he risks his reputation and his safety and his good name and his fortune and he places it all on the line and he enters into this world to find the younger brothers to find those who are in exile to rescue those and redeem those who are far from the father that's the solution solution to our human condition you know there's an irritating christian song on the radio it says when you don't know what to say just say jesus and it's kind of irritating because i don't think that's the answer in math and i was bad at math and i wish i would have thought of that what's uh the what's the square root of such and such i don't know what to say jesus (laughs) that'd be funny would be horrible answer But in this respect, in what we're looking at today, the very crux of the human condition, the the answer is Christ. The answer is Jesus. He came to this earth and he lived a perfect life for you and for me. He died on the cross as a substitute for us. He was stripped bare so you might be clothed with a robe. He was made homeless 
so that you might have an eternal home. He died penniless so you could have the riches of heaven. He did all of this for us. This is the divine solution to the world's problems. And just think what this solution will accomplish someday. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I don't know if you've sat and thought about what your eternal destination will be like. Sometimes it gets convoluted and strange and conflated and we throw in all these different thoughts from pop culture and from uh, literature and we mash up this view of heaven that's not at all what the scriptures teach. Like we'll be strumming harps and floating on clouds and we'll be angels somehow. That's not what the scriptures teach. In Isaiah 25, we read what the scriptures teach. This is what they say. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. Are you hearing how he's repeating things? Of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. That's the picture the scriptures give of heaven. When you get together with your family in a few weeks, what will you do? If you're like my family, you'll eat. You get together and you'll eat. You'll eat, you'll drink, you'll be merry. Yeah, and I know, there might be the weird uncle. You might have to tolerate some strangeness with your family. But there will be great feasting and great joy and great celebration because the family is together. And that is just a foretaste of what is to come. Why do you think our culture hangs on to this picture of Thanksgiving, of the family gathered around a meal? Why do you think that resonates in a consumeristic culture like America? What greater story could it be tapping into that advertisers and businesses just can't quite crack into it. Butterball's the nearest thing to weaseling their way in there. It's because it's story number two. Because it's the story that says what is going to fix us is when brothers and sisters feast together. We're no longer fighting each other. We're no longer at each other's throats. How will this occur? (laughs) Because the Father's home. Because the Father lays down the law. And the law He lays down is this. He creates a great banquet feast for all. 
He wipes away tears. He takes away all the pains and trials of this world. That is the answer to Friday. That is the answer to those days when horrible, terrible things happen in this world. Sadly, it ain't here yet. Sadly, we live in the now, but the not yet. Sadly, we live in this place and time where there will be suffering. There will be pain. There will be sorrow. There will be tears. And I am becoming more and more convinced that the American church may be entering into a period of time that none of us will like. And we will kick and fight and scream and vote and get flustered. Perhaps we need to just accept what Jesus, the Master, said. In this world you will have troubles. They hated me. So don't be shocked when they hate you. For no servant is greater than his master. The early disciples, when they were persecuted, there's a story of two of them when they were beaten with whips. Instead of trying to pass laws where Christians wouldn't be whipped anymore. Instead of going and writing a letter to the editor about how poorly they were treated. Instead of praying, God, please make it go away that this would no longer happen. They went away rejoicing. Praising God that they had been found worthy to suffer for the name. What gives people strength like that? Isaiah 25 gives people strength like that. The understanding that one day God will prepare a feast for you and your siblings and he will wipe away every tear. Let us live in that strength. Let us live in that vision. Let us enter into that sort of community with one another. Let us start being brothers and sisters who understand the price that Christ paid to welcome us home, to celebrate us and bring us home. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage and for uh, just the continued richness of being able to just mold us over to continue to look at it like a beautifully shaped diamond that glistens in different ways each week. Lord, I pray that as we look at this broken, torn, messed up world, we would understand that the way forward is not to be hateful, spiteful, mean, nasty. The way forward is what Jesus said. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
I pray, Father, that the vision of the coming feast would strengthen us for that. That we would gladly suffer for the name of Christ. Holy Spirit, make it so. Thank you for the older brother, Jesus Christ, who came looking for us to save us from our sin. Father, I pray if anyone here today has not ever started to follow Jesus, that they would do so today. That they would understand the love of the Father and the love of Jesus Christ that is offered to them, that they would call upon the name of the Lord and they would be baptized and come to know him as their love, their Savior and their Lord. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and be good to you. May we, the older brothers, those who know Christ, go looking for the younger brothers. May those who are younger brothers be welcomed into the feast of the Father today. Amen. Amen.